0: Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. It's nice to see you all. My name's Steph. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And uh, we are going to be carrying on in our Good King, Bad King series today. Um... Got a big weekend coming up as a nation next weekend with the coronation of King Charles. So we thought we would spend a number of weeks just looking at different kings of Israel, stay on that theme, and um, learn some of the big lessons uh, from, from um, these characters and the nation of Israel during the time. Israel was originally a theocracy. A theocracy means that you are directly ruled by God. Obviously, it's quite an amazing thing. Um, but they said, no, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. We want a king to lead us out into war. We want to be like the others, which was um, quite a damning moment for the nations because God's assessment is um, of that, that. At that point, uh, that they weren't rejecting Samuel, their prophet and judge, but they were rejecting him. They weren't confident in him. Now, This is really important. Before we go any further, they're looking around at all of these other nations with their kings, could see him with their eyes, you know, you could, you could hear their voice. They were often normally warriors. Kings would lead out their armies in battle. That's what they would do in those days. So they were tangible. And God is saying, I'll be your king, I'll be your leader. This is a God who's, who's, who's broken open the, the Red Sea and done all kinds of miracles. And God's saying, would you just trust in me? No, we want to be like the other nations. We want something tangible. We want to live by what we we want to live by our natural senses. We want our eyes and our natural senses to be satisfied. That will give us confidence. That will feel like, yeah, we're going somewhere here now. And God is saying, in that moment, they, they were rejecting him. Nevertheless, God knew that um, they were going to call for a king. He it was predicted in another book that was written earlier than all of this. So God wasn't taken by surprise. Um, and there were some good kings, but there were a lot of bad kings. We looked at Saul a couple of weeks ago. and we looked at David, um, who was probably the most famous king. But this king comes a, a very, uh, very close second. Um, we are all familiar with the phrase, the wisdom of Solomon. All right. So here we've got someone who lived 3,000 years ago, who approximately, who is still famous for his wisdom. So that is quite something. Now, during Solomon's reign... Any, any, um, any history any history buffs? Any people like history in the room? One. Plus me. Two. You guys don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're what you Oh, gosh, what are you doing in your spare time? Anyway, this really probably was, this was the golden age for Israel. Okay? This was really the, the moment where Israel was, in terms of territory conquered, prosperity material prosperity this was the dream time listen to the description of what israel was like this isn't our passage so um don't worry at the moment i'll tell you when to put our passage up but um it says this it says that um all king solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of lebanon were of pure gold none were of silver silver wasn't considered any as anything in the days of solomon For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver, gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Right, we're, talking about a, we're talking about literally a golden age. All right, literally a golden age. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Now, the other thing is this, is that during Solomon's reign, the temple of God was built. David was not allowed to build the temple because he had blood on his hands. David was a warrior king, and he had blood on his hands. And as a result, God said, I don't, I don't want you to build my house. Because even though there have been righteous wars and all the rest of it, nevertheless, you're not the person to build the house of God and so really uh, Solomon uh, built that. Um, Solomon was living in the good of the victories his father had won but he got to oversee the building of the temple so it's an age of peace an age of prosperity but as is often the case in such scenarios when there's nothing left to fight for things begin to creep in that spell trouble for the next generation. It's a fascinating thing We all want to get to the good stuff, and then sometimes we get to the good stuff, and you go, hmm, I'm kind of looking back when it wasn't so good, and I felt fully alive. There was something to fight for. So it's a really interesting thing, the kind of human psychology and how it all works, but here we've got a situation where there's nothing really to fight for. There is rest in every direction. Everyone knows that Israel is the kingdom and so no one's really causing trouble and it's a place it's a time of real uh, peace so there can be no denying that Solomon's reign while obviously glorious as we will find out when we read through the story today sowed the seeds for the breaking up of the nation that followed so it's an amazing age in the moment but certain things Solomon did one thing particularly we'll look at Sowed the seeds actually for the breaking up of the nation of Israel. So it was an incredible reign, but it was also an incredibly short-sighted reign. What Solomon did did not serve the following generation; served himself. He had a great time, but it did not serve those who came next. So let's read our scripture today: One Kings chapter three, first fifteen verses. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. That's probably Bethlehem, probably referring to Bethlehem. Until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he, made, he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Not good. And, his, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was where the, great high, for the that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, "Ask what I shall give you. Stop there. You have that? What are you going to ask for? Just stop for a moment. God appears to you and says, "Ask what I shall give you." What are you going to ask for? You haven't got to tell me. Don't worry. Be honest. What do you ask for? What an offer. Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept... For him, this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father, though I am but a little child. He was probably about 20 at this point, though I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, To govern the people, your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this, you've not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern what's right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you Has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all of his servants. So in this passage, we see two main things. We see what makes Solomon and we see what breaks Solomon. In the passage I just read, you see two things, what makes him and what breaks him. What makes him is this, his request. He asks for wisdom. He asks for understanding. When was the last time you prayed for wisdom? Don't tell me. Just think. Reflect. When was the last time you cried out with an earnest heart for wisdom and understanding? What is wisdom? Well, it's different from knowledge. Knowledge, probably, you could say, comes under the umbrella of wisdom because you need knowledge to be wise. Knowledge is the gathering of information so you know what's going on. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. Wisdom is about smart decision making. Wisdom is about how to treat people, who to invest in, who to avoid, what to do with your resources. That's what wisdom's about. Wisdom's about decisions that you make in life. Wisdom's wisdom's about how you conduct yourself in your relationships. Wisdom's about big moments, big decisions, big choices that you have. What are you going to do in this moment? That's what wisdom's about. Wisdom involves often what you do with your money, what you do with your time, what you do with your relationships. All of this. The big decisions where fast forward 50 years, you look back and what kind of life you've had, are based on wisdom and folly. And he says, give me wisdom. Let's listen to how the Bible talks about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3 says this. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels. Do you believe that? And nothing you desire can compare with her. Do you believe that? Nothing you desire can compare with wisdom. Do you believe that? Nothing you desire. So if, the, if you think, he's sitting there going, I've prayed lately, but I can't remember the last time I prayed for wisdom. And the Bible says nothing you desire compares with her. Maybe you've got to think about what you pray for. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand, are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. It's wisdom. We see humility in Solomon. I don't know how to do this. We live in an age of kind of, how can I describe it? We're, our age is not so God-centered. We are more individualized. So we focus on backing ourselves. We focus on visualizing success and positivity. Solomon simply says, I can't do it. He's not backing himself. Crime of all crimes. He's not backing himself. He's not just visualizing success. If I visualize what it looks like, like a successful king, we're going to do it. He says, I can't do it. It's too much for me. It's beyond me. I'm in too deep. Folks, if you are here as a Christian, you're involved in the things of the kingdom, you are automatically in too deep. Did you know that? If you're called to go into your workplace and shine the light of Christ, you're in way too deep. You do not know how to do that properly. If you're trying to make disciples and invest in other people so that they can, they can come into the full expression of all God's put in them by the Holy Spirit, you're in way too deep. You don't know how to do that. You can visualize all you like. You can back yourself all you like. You don't know how to do that. Are you praying for impossible things? Things that only God can do, which you should be, because if you can do them, just get on with it. Hey <laughs> Are so you pray for things that are beyond you? You're in too deep. That's why the Bible says, you don't know how to pray as you walk. We are in too deep. We're involved in things that are completely beyond us. At least we should be. At least we should be. The Christian life involves us in things that are way beyond us. Calls us into all kinds of mysterious, deep things. Solomon says, I can't do it. When was the last time he said to God, I can't do it? When was the last time he said to God, I need you? Listen to this. This is one of my favorite proverbs if, if i had any time with you, one-to-one with the Bible, you go, I know where he's going now. Sorry, I'm incredibly repetitive and boring. I've made the confession, now I can read it. Okay, listen to this. Proverbs 30, the words of Agur, son of Jackie, the oracle. The man declares, I'm weary, O God, I'm weary, O God, I'm worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. And I'm not, you know, we laugh, but I'm serious. Do you realize that you don't get it? Do you realize that, that the way you see and understand life just from your natural perspective is so filled with your own preferences, your own prejudices, your own likes and dislikes, your own baggage, your own heritage, you do not see it as God sees it. So much so that in some senses and in some ways, it's a bit like being, you know, not even being too stupid to be a human and not having to understand. You feel like, Lord, I just feel like like a total donkey in this situation. When was the last time you felt like a total donkey? It's horrible, but it's healthy. It's healthy because what it does is you lean on God. I was in certain situations in in the role in what I do recently where I'm literally cold sweats. I'm in situations at my table thinking, Lord, I hate this. Okay, am I in the will of God? Yeah, right? But I'm going, Lord, I hate this. Why? Because I am dealing with personal insecurities and fears in these settings that are horrible. And the things I'd normally like to lean on aren't here. I need you to help me. That's good. That's how you grow. That's how you grow. That's what Solomon's in. How am I meant to do this? And Give me a mind that understands. That's a really good, really healthy. It was the making of him. The wisdom that comes from above. Listen to how James describes the wisdom that comes from above. It's so good. He says this. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure. He says, the... It's, it, before this, he's t- spoken about the wisdom from the earth. And the main word is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. Then he goes into the wisdom from above. Pure, then peaceable, gentle. Listen to this. Open to reason. Open to reason. You listen. Ready to a- adjust. Oh yeah, I wasn't seeing that right. That's wisdom from God. Oh yeah, not stubborn. open, Reasonable. Open to reason. Full of mercy, full of mercy and good fruits. This is wonderful. This is not natural, (laughs) supernatural. This is what it's like. Now, an essential step in coming to Jesus is this realization that you don't get it. (laughs) So just a moment for those of you now, you're sitting here, you're with us. But in another sense, you're not part of us in the sense you've not yet come to Jesus personally. And maybe you've got all kinds of questions about the gospel, the cross, you know, all of that. So let's just settle it in case you're thinking, this cross stuff sounds crazy. Yeah, here it is. Look, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is. Most people in the world think it's a ridiculous idea that someone being crucified, you putting your trust in that, can save you. Yeah, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Our eyes have been opened and we've got it and the penny's dropped and you go, oh my goodness. Faith is given by the Holy Spirit enabling you to reach out spiritually, not physically, but in your heart. You reach out and you lay a hold of Christ crucified and put your trust in him and you're born again. It's a total miracle. He goes on, he says, he quotes the scripture. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's God talking. All the worldly wisdom, God says, I'm going to do away with it, because all it's leading to is pride. It's not leading to anything good. Sure, people are clever. Sure, they figure things out, because they're going to do away with it, because it's not actually leading to any, anything godly. It just leads to pride. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believed. Jews want signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power and wisdom of God. Amen. We know it. We've seen it. We, our lives have been changed by Christ, the wisdom and power of God. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hallelujah. Wow. So this is the making of Solomon. Let this be the making of you. Saying, Lord, I don't know. I don't get it. As, a, as Someone who's not yet a believe. I don't. Open my eyes. Show me Christ crucified. If this is true, show me. What a powerful and dangerous prayer to pray. God, if you're real... And if, if this is really true, and if this message will save me, show me. Don't pray it as some sort of joke. Don't do that. You're dealing with deep waters here. But if you, mean, if you want to know, ask him. Because he's real, and watch what he does. Those of us who do know him, and we're on that foundation of Jesus, don't move off of it into your own wisdom, for goodness sake. You can do it in two ways. You can just start dealing, organize your life so everything's manageable and controlled. You're no longer seeking first his kingdom. Sorry. You're just just trying to live a a life where you're in control. So you don't need him. Or stay in the things of God but you're just totally freaking out the whole time because you're not confident he's going to lead you through. Always anxious, always stressed. No, no, no. There's a third way. Stay in the things of God. Say, Lord, I, as we heard earlier prophetically from Malcolm, God, please, can your word be a light to my path? Show me the next step. He will not show you the whole story. He doesn't do it. Why? Because as soon as he does, guess what happens? You stop trusting. Oh, thanks, Lord. See you later. (laughs) He shows you a step at a time so you can learn how to walk in dependence on him. That's how it works, folks. It's the making of Solomon. What's the breaking of Solomon? Right near the start, we're told... Again, if you know your history, you'll know this is very common in these days. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Back in those days, you would marry, for, if you were in power, for political alliances. So, okay, if I marry your daughter, it's, probably, it's going to be advantages, politically, mutually so. We're not going to go to war with each other and all of that. So that's what happened there. God had specifically warned them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says this to them. He says, Deuteronomy 7 he says into the land you're going into all these different people groups you shall make no covenant with them show no mercy to them you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods and then the anger of the Lord will be quickly kindled against you see back in the day everyone worshipped something they still do now but it's not like a statue." Okay, but everyone we're made to be worshippers, everyone's devoted to something as their main thing, whether it's themselves or a cause or whatever or another religion. Back in the day, everyone was religious. Everyone had little statues, gods, and idols, okay? That and it was kind of built around a whole sort of plethora of different gods and ideas. And the people of Israel were unique in that they were God's people, they served the living God, not a man-made idol, they served the God of heaven and earth, and God is saying, Whatever you do, don't intermarry. Not because it's wrong to intermarry with people from other ethnic groups. Because it's wrong to intermarry with someone who has a different devotion to yourself. You'll be pulling against each other constantly. If you serve the living God and you marry someone who doesn't serve the living God, you are are making a decision to align yourself to a lifestyle either of tension or compromise. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, he's your number one. It's not just you've added Jesus into your life, you are serving him. And so then to, to, for the person closest to you in, in your life to choose to draw someone into that closeness of marriage, and yet in that sense, you're, but, but have a different thing as their main thing, no matter how sympathetic they are, you're not going to be able to run together for Christ. For the Lord, for God. And so God sees this. And you're not going to bring your children up if you have children. Or when you have children, wholeheartedly in the things of God. Because only one of you really loves God. So your kids to be hearing two things. It's just very, very frank and very, very honest. That's really the situation how it is. Now, clearly Solomon was a go big or go home kind of guy. Because... We've, we, we, we find out, let's just read actually the details of this. It, it gets a lot worse than just this thing in 1 Kings 3. In 1 Kings 11, we read the scale of the problem. 1 Kings 11 says this, chapter, uh, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women. And he goes through a list of different ones. Um, and then it says, he clung to them in love. He had 700 wives. This isn't just polygamy, folks. This is like, this is what I'm saying. Who were princesses and 300 concubines? A concubine in a polygamous context would be a a woman that was kind of brought in as part of the household, but is of a lower status than the than 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 the wife. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Right? This is the problem, folks. In case you didn't know. Let me just also make this clear. This, this, this is not a comment. Because Solomon did this and then became spiritually corrupt, which he did, listen to what happened. It says, his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Milcom, not Malcolm, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, didn't wholly follow the Lord. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. They're called abominations because they're not just false gods. They would require child sacrifice and all of that. So Solomon is getting into all of that. This is Solomon. Now, what I was saying was this this is not a, this this the commentary here is not that. Um, you know, women are spiritually corrupting. Just to make that clear. Sure, you all know that, but I just want to say that. That is not what is being taught here at all, okay? What is being taught here is that if you join yourself close to someone who is worshipping something or something else, it's going to impact upon your own worship. It just will. The Bible gives um, just very, very um, clear instructions on that, Solomon had a weakness for women and it led to spiritual corruption, turning his heart away. You see, you can have it all and then realize it's empty. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon and it's him reflecting on this season of his life, among other things. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, here's how he puts it. So Solomon is reflecting on this situation i've just read to you about he says i gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces i got singers both men and women con- many concubines the delight of the sons of men. so i became great and surpassed all who were before me in jerusalem also my wisdom remained with me wherever my eyes desired whatever my eyes desired i did not keep from them how about that how about that you've got the resources Whatever my eyes desired i didn't keep from them I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all that my hands had done, and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's looking looking back and he's going, what a waste of time. What a waste of a life. You can... Live in such a way that you have it all and then lose it all. It happens. Sometimes there's no fault of your own. Recession, war, displacement. But sometimes it's very avoidable. It's to do with not obeying God. God loves to bless. God loves to give us good things. And sometimes you can, but your heart can get corrupted in it all. And it can all just go horribly wrong. Solomon here had a loss of wisdom he was wise because he feared God. He stopped fearing God. How do we know he stopped fearing God? Simple. He stopped obeying God. It's a really, it's really, really simple test of whether you love God, trust him and fear him, if you obey him. You haven't got to sit around thinking, how do I feel? Do I feel like I'm, I feel, I'm feeling reverent today? The fear of God is manifested, the love of God Love for God is manifested. Trust in God is manifested by obedience. If you want to put it like this, obedience is God's love language. It's how God knows you love him. And there's something quite nice and clear and measurable about it. Am I doing what he says? Am I trusting him? What, what's, what's the thing that could pull your heart away? Let's end on this. What's the thing that could pull your heart away? It might be Solomon's thing. It may, may be the whole thing around relationships, intimacy, sex, and all of that. Just to say that the 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 the, the Bible advice on, on marriage is really straightforward. If you, if marriage is for you, choose well, just the one. Okay, <laughs> like them. Okay, like them. You think why well, you don't like them? Some Christians do crazy things. The Lord told me to marry this person. Do you like them? No. Don't be so silly. Just share your life with that person. It's madness. Like them. And make sure they really love Jesus. Anyone can say, I'm a Christian. Make sure they really love Jesus. So you can run together. There you go. But it, like I say, this may not be the issue. It could be money for you could be pleasures and comforts for you, could be power control. You have to know what are the things that get their hook into your heart and pull you away from wisdom. What are they? When I'm discipling people, I'll often say to them, okay, if you're going to go wrong, where are you going to go wrong? And if they can't answer, I'm worried about them. I'm worried about them. You've got to know where your Achilles heel is. What's going what's gonna to get you? What's going to take you out? So that you can shore yourself up, strengthen yourself, so you can run the race and finish well. Amen? Solomon started well-ish, but essentially well. But he didn't go from strength to strength. He sort of was all like that. That can happen. I don't understand how it all works and what God makes of it all and what God's final assessment of all that will be. I don't understand. What I do know is is that there is a constant urging to persevere to the end and finish your race well. And, and And an assumption that you will be being transformed incrementally and ever increasingly into the likeness of Christ in your journey. Not that you'll stagnate, go stale, just manage your way to the end. There will be Moments in the race where you wobble, where you get injured, where you think, oh, this is hard work. Anyone seen of the highlights for London Marathon last week? That incredible woman, is it Hassan Safan. I thought I said it right. She is amazing. And I've seen her. I've seen her. I love watching track and field. I've seen her on that. But her first marathon. And um, she says she was crying. In the morning, why did I, why am I doing this? She wasn't backing herself. <laughs> She did it and then injured on the way. And everyone's going, why is she she carrying on? She just carries on. I think she nearly knocked a camera over going to get a drink because she'd never had to go and get drinks before running. She'd never done a marathon before. Won the marathon. (laughs) Absolutely extraordinary. But you look at the race, you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what it's like, folks. That's what the race is like. But she finished strong. So Solomon is the heights for Israel. Israel. In so many ways. Um, But his heart was being incrementally pulled away from the Lord. And then as a result, we have trouble. Trouble starts to show. We're told, towards the end of his reign, God God starts raising up enemies. To deal with Solomon's way. I want to end by doing what our wonderful singers told us to do earlier. And turn our face towards Jesus. Jesus spiritually speaking, has conquered all the territory. <laughs> He's done it on the cross. Risen, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And as Vivian suggested earlier, that what the Father has promised Jesus is the nations of the world. They all belong to him. And through his church, obeying the great commission, and going and sharing the gospel, there will be people from every tribe and tongue around the throne at the end. Jesus is building the house of God. Solomon oversaw an iteration of the house of God. But the true house of God, the church made up of living stones, Jesus is building that. And he said, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Amen. And Jesus' heart was and is completely committed to the Father's will. He finished his race magnificently. And now the Bible says he's he's sitting down at the right hand of God. Sitting down because his work's done. He's sitting down and he's waiting for all his enemies to be gathered under his feet. Folks, we're not sitting down yet. We're running. Some of us are near the start of our race. Some of us are getting near to the end of our race. We never know when we're going to get called home. I want to urge and encourage all of us to run with all of our hearts for the Lord and not to be discouraged. Amen? Amen.